let's continue our time of worship as we come and pray. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we have been singing of your birth, we know that your birth was in preparation of your death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father where you sit even now reigning over heaven and earth and you sent your spirit into the hearts of your people to bring you glory. And our desire this morning is to glorify you and to learn more about what you have done so that we will seek to glorify you even more. So fill us with your spirit, fill this, this room with your truth, and especially this morning as we talk about peace. In Jesus' name we ask. And all God's people said, amen. Oh, it's Christmas time. I love, love, love Christmas time. I know some of you think I'm down on Christmas. You've gotten the wrong idea over the years. Certainly, I have made sure that you don't treat Christmas as cute because it's not cute. Those little nativity scenes with the little pudgy angels, that's not how it works. Clarence is a horrible example of a biblical angel. Angels are not cute, they're terrifying. But I'm not down on Christmas. And I'm a big stickler for not celebrating Christmas until after the day of Thanksgiving, so no Christmas music. Some of you need to repent, <laughs> confess your sin and repent of the sin of listening to Christmas music, and I hate the fact that they can get all the Christmas stuff out at stores beforehand, not because I'm down on Christmas, but because I want to preserve the, the special aspect of Christmas. But now it's Christmas time, so get out the music, get out the ornaments, and have a great time. It's wonderful. I love how our whole culture celebrates something at this time of year. There's, a, there's an optimism in the air in our culture. Everybody is happy, it seems like. It, it is the season to be jolly, right? Have you used the word jolly since last Christmas? No, we have a whole language just for this time of year. How about Yuletide? Do you even know what Yuletide is? Most of you don't, but you sing it every year at this time. We have our, a language just for Christmas time, and all the decorations, they're, they're wonderful. There, there seems to be a, a hopefulness, a, an optimism about this time of year, and people try to be nice. Well, most people try to be nice. Krista was telling me that she was at uh, Sam's gas station the other day, and if this was you, here's another opportunity for you to confess. But, you know, at Sam's, there's two p uh, pumps next to each other, and uh, when those two pumps are empty, then if you're coming in and the pumps in front of you are empty, which one should you go to? The furthest one, right? Well, somebody didn't do that. They stopped the first one, so there was this one up here that you had to go around, and apparently somebody got out and started lecturing that person and said, who do you think you are? You think the whole world is about you? And you know, bah humbug was what they said, basically. It's like, get over yourself, man. Just, they made a mistake, whatever. So not everybody's always jolly, but in general... We're jolly. We like presents. Now, presents get a bad rap sometimes the time of year. Yeah. I stole that from my wife. She made that up, told that at prison yesterday, and I told her I was going to honor her by uh, repeating that wonderful joke. But there, there's something kids love this time of year, and, and hopefully all of us 
we, we just don't ever outgrow that. There's an optimism. But, admittedly, some of the optimism is manufactured, isn't it? Some of it is created by a culture that doesn't even know why they should maybe be happy and joyful. They certainly are not joyful for all the right reasons. And we have to admit that there is true pessimism, or at least some concern, some, some the, the, the truth is that there's a lot of evil in the world. And what, what happens is part of that manufactured happiness is the media kind of takes a break from its normal job. I hope you realize this. Christians can be naive sometimes. Don't watch the news channels and assume they are telling the truth about culture. It, neither CNN nor Fox News. You know, Christians tend to go to the Fox News route and we think, oh, Fox News, we can trust them. No, you can't. Their business model is the same. Shock value, sensationalism, it's all about making money. That's what they do. That's why they exist. And the more extreme, shocking things they can put out, and, and, and uh, the more money they can make, and people tend to gravitate toward the ugliness. Why are we like that? Why do we like this? Why? We can't turn away from the stories that are going to paint a really awful picture. There is no news organization that can make a lot of money only dealing with hopeful, wholesome, good things. Nobody would watch it. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? That's pretty telling of our culture. You, you couldn't do that. We've got to be careful and not get sucked into the, the media, the culture, those who are trying to control the narrative and frame our thoughts. There is real optimism, and yet there is real evil in the world. Paul says to Timothy, some of our least favorite words maybe, uh, here's what Paul says, if I can get there. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And we've been living in the last days since he wrote these words. And this is what, some of what's going to characterize those last days. Now, have in your mind, American culture and Hollywood and media as I read this. For men will be lovers of self. Know anybody like that? Lovers of money. Know anybody like that? Boastful, arrogant, just watched football this afternoon. Revilers, disobedient to parents, anyone? Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now we think this is all out in the world, but the next line says, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. He's actually talking about people who claim to be Christians, who claim to be godly, but they're denying the power of the Holy Spirit to transform them into righteousness. Those are Paul's warnings to Timothy to not spend time with those in the church who, who are acting like this. Ignore them. Run away from them. Don't spend time with them because they're, they're evil. So, not everything's happy, not everything's jolly all the time. But as Christians, we also have to be careful. It's easy to read those passages and have a very pessimistic view of history 
and the world. It was into this false pessimism, optimism, this, this uncertainty, this worldliness that's pursuing, it was into that world that the child was born to give us real hope, like we talked about last week, and to show us what real optimism is all about. And I want us this Christmas time to be optimistic with the Bible's definition of optimism and take that into the new year and not wait till next December, or at least the day after Thanksgiving, to be jolly, to be hopeful. So I want to walk through a very familiar passage to us this time of year. Turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We know at least a couple of these verses. Some of you have been in choirs that have sung the Messiah. Handel wrote these words down and set them to music, and it's beautiful. But we're going to pick up the context, starting in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah is speaking to a culture not all that much different from our own. He's talking to Jewish people who had disobeyed God, who had lived out even some of those things that Paul spoke of, even though this was hundreds of years before Christ, and they were under the judgment of God. They were not seeking fast how to please God. They were not pursuing righteousness. They were worshiping idols. They were sinning, they were treacherous, they were, their marriages were a mess, their families were a mess, their synagogues were a mess, it was bad. And God had judged them for their sin. And the word here is gloomy and darkness. Look at verse one. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. What, is that, what does that assume? There was gloom. They were in anguish. The time is coming when there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephtali with contempt. This is God he's talking about. God treated his own people with contempt. He was angry at them because of their sin. And it was dark. In the Bible, darkness is contrasted with the light and it usually involves sin and treachery and then judgment. This is why it got dark at high noon when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Because God was judging Jesus. Because he had our sin on him. So there's darkness, there's gloom. But God is predicting through Isaiah there's a time coming when there will be no more gloom for who is in anguish. In earlier times, the land of Nethali was treated with contempt, but later he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, he doesn't mention it here, but do you know where Nazareth was? Near Galilee. The one who's going to come and get rid of the darkness and the gloom is going to come from Galilee. Nazareth. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. There is hope. There is a future for these people who are under God's judgment. They won't stay there. God's going to shine the light in the darkness. And then he speaks to God. You 
shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness or their joy. I love that word gladness. That's a word that we need to use more. Are you glad this morning? Do you experience gladness? Is your heart filled with gladness? Isaiah says God's going to bring gladness. He's going to increase it and they will be glad in your presence, in the presence of the Lord. And then he gives a couple of illustrations of this. The, as with the gladness of harvest. Now we read that kind of uh, description that's found all over the place in the Old Testament especially, and it doesn't really mean that much to you because for us, harvest is every week. Right? Every Tuesday my, or Monday, my wife goes to the store and it's harvest. Right? She goes home with an empty trunk of my van and she comes home with a full trunk of my van and we go out and bring that stuff into the fridge and now we have a full fridge. It's harvest. We're not worried about eating something tomorrow or the next day or next week. But think back to the original culture here. Every spring they would have to plant the seeds in hope that they would get the rain they need on the land and disease and bugs and other things wouldn't come and destroy the crop, tornadoes, storms, whatever. And then at the end of the summer, after it had grown, they would have the big harvest. And now they know we get to eat for another, another winter because they could gather it in and, and store it away. If it was a particularly rough summer, then the harvest would be small if it was a bountiful summer, then it would be a great harvest and they would celebrate. But can you imagine if every year in that cycle, you didn't know what your eating was going to be like in the wintertime until the harvest came. And when it was a great harvest, there would be great celebration and gladness and joy because we get to eat. Most of us, maybe all of us, don't know what that kind of gladness is. Well, we know what it's like to be glad to get to eat, just not because we thought we might starve, but because, hey, it's ice cream, right? Or pie with lots and lots of whipped cream. He says, you, you will bring this kind of gladness as with harvest. So these people are in darkness and gloom, and it's bad, and they're under God's contemptuous judgment, but someday he's going to make them rejoice and glad like a harvest. Then he changes the metaphor. As when men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Again, eh, we're so far removed from this culture. Even those of you in the military don't get to do this. And in some ways that's a good thing. But imagine being in a nation where there was constant threat from enemies and men had to be trained as soldiers and they would go out and be sent and you just didn't know if you're going to win or not. And how many of the soldiers are going to be killed? But the men go out and they fight and they conquer their enemies. And then they go and enjoy the fruit of their work as God has given them victory and now all the wealth of the nation they conquered the soldiers get and they come back and bring it to the people and everybody celebrates and they're glad because we won, we, we drove away the enemy and look at all the increase that we have. That's joy, that's gladness. 
he says. That's what it's going to be like someday, God promises. Verse 4, for you, God, shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. Again, a metaphor we just don't understand. Have any of you ever actually worked with a yoke? I'm looking. It's not rhetorical. Anybody? One, on your own neck, Trevor? That's not Trevor. Tyler. Sorry, it's not, not firing here. A yoke on the animal, the big yoke, they, they were heavy and they bound the two oxen together where they had to go everywhere and it's what they used to drive the oxen to, to pull the plow, to carry the heavy loads and it weighed the oxen down. And that's the imagery used, this heavy burden on the shoulders of men under the judgment of God. That's what he's describing his people. You're weighed down with this, with your sin, with my contempt of you. You're, you're, you're collapsing under the weight. But someday I'm going to break that yoke. I'm going to take that yoke and remove it from you. The rod of the oppressor, just as at the battle of Midian. Oh, that's a great story. Remember the story of Midian, Gideon? You all know Gideon? Gideon was this, this man that God calls in the period of the judges. Again, Israel was disobeying. They were, they were committing idolatry, and, and God brought Midianites down, and, and Midian ruled over the Jews, and they were very cruel and harsh to them. And the people cried out to God for help, and he raised up Gideon, and, and Gideon raises up an army, and God says, no, 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 that's way too many. Because if you defeat the Midianites with that many people, you'll think you did it on your own. So everybody who doesn't want to be here, go home. A bunch of them left. God says, nope, still too many. So Gideon, take them down to the water, and I'm going to divide them up based on how they drink water. So if you want to go to battle, man, scoop up the water like this. Lick it out of your hands. And 300 of them did that. The rest of them got down on their face and lapped it up like a dog. He said, those guys go home. These 300 that know how to drink water, they're going to stay. And then they took their swords and their, their torches and pitchers and they surrounded the Midianites and they screamed and cried out for the Lord and for Gideon and broke their pitchers and shined their torches and Midianites started killing each other in chaos and God's people were delivered from their oppressor. And God says, someday for you who are under my judgment, I'm going to free you from that bondage just as I did with Israel in the days of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and every cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. We can get rid of all of our uniforms, all of our paraphernalia for war. It'll be just fuel for the fire. Why? Verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. When is this gladness, this freedom, this release from God's judgment? When? When God sends a son, a special child. We know who that child is now. The Jews didn't know. They were waiting, looking forward, but now we look back and we know that's Jesus. But we can't stop there. Look what is said next. 
and the government or the dominion or the rulership will rest on his shoulders. So I'm going to take the oppression from your shoulders and then I'm not going to replace it with rule, but I'm going to put the rule on Jesus and as long as he's your ruler, you won't be oppressed. The government, the, the, the kingdom will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now I have to explain that in our day because counselor almost always means something like therapist today. That's not what the word meant that, that Isaiah is using here. This is the military strategist. This son who comes, who has the, the, the rulership on his shoulders, he is going to be a wonderful military commander-in-chief. He will know the strategy it will take to defeat his enemies. Jesus knows the enemy, and he knows how to destroy his enemy. He is the wonderful military strategist. He will be called Mighty God. Amazing that the Jews did not expect God to show up in human form. Right here, we're told that child is going to be the mighty God. He's going to act on behalf of the mighty God, but he is mighty God. And then the strange one that always gives us fits, eternal father. Wait a minute, I thought he was the son. Now you're calling him the eternal father. Well, we think of uh, fatherhood almost exclusively in the terms of biology, of genetics, of, of progeny. But fatherhood in, in Jewish categories was the head of a people who behaved like him and his responsibility as the head was to protect and take care of. So lots of different people are called fathers even over those, even uh, those who they are not the actual biological dad of. So this one who comes, he's not going to be the father in the way that the father is the father, but he's going to take care of his people the way a father takes care of his family. And he's going to do this for all time, everlasting or eternal father. And he's going to be called the prince of peace. This military strategist, this king, this ruler, this god, this father, is a prince, and he's going to establish peace. Now look at verse 7. The world is going to continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse when he comes. Anybody's Bible say that? If it does, you need a new Bible. All right, I'm going to push some of you a little bit to see if you really trust God's word. Look at it again. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Does your Bible say that? All different translations? Something like that? When this child comes and starts building his kingdom, the increase of peace will not end. 
That's what he says. That's the prediction. That being true, my question is, why are we so pessimistic as Christians? The world is an evil place, for sure. But the Prince of Peace has come. And he has begun building his kingdom. And God said, that kingdom is going to continue to grow. And his peace will grow with it. So why are we pessimistic? He has come. And he's establishing peace. And it's growing. So Jesus showed up. And he took 12 men when everybody else pretty much abandoned him. And he sent those 12 men starting in Jerusalem. And he said, I want you to go into the whole world and build my kingdom. 12 men. That's pretty small, isn't it? Imagine somebody showing up, I'm going to transform the world. I mean, literally transform the world. How are you going to do it? Well, I got 12 guys. Wow, they must be something. Yeah, you know, a couple of fishermen. Not really well educated. Not exactly the movers and shakers of the world. I've got a tax collector. He's pretty much made his living stealing from his own people. Got a couple of these guys, a couple of those guys. These guys are not making it into the competition for Times Man of the Year kind of stuff. He takes these 12 and he says, go, transform the world. The kingdom of God started really small. And how many Christians do you suppose are on planet Earth today? Because of the work of those 12 men. The Apostle Paul himself almost single-handedly converted Europe. In fact, he writes to the Colossians in his own day, in the first century, this gospel has been preached to the entire world. Now, did that mean every single person had heard it? Of course not. But when you think of starting in Jerusalem, one little bitty town with 12 people, and over the next 40 years... There are churches in all the major cities of the Roman Empire like Ephesus and Corinth and Rome. And then it just grew out from there. And here we are 2,000 years later. How many millions of Christians are on planet Earth today? A lot. Because there will be no end to the increase of his kingdom, and of peace. We need to be a little more optimistic in 2020 in preaching the gospel and working toward peace. One of the enemy's great tools or strategies is to make us pessimistic. If you're thinking the world is going to hell in a handbasket, how vibrantly are you going to preach the gospel to somebody? Uh, they probably won't listen to me anyway. 
There's an old metaphor that some have used that we're just polishing brass on a sinking ship. Why would you do that? I wouldn't do that. I'd build a, a, a lifeboat or look for the life jackets. I wouldn't polish brass if the ship's going down. Why would you do that? But that's not the way the Bible describes it. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. How has he built his kingdom? Through you and through me. Establishing peace and preaching the gospel. Usually in the other way around, right? The other order. Here's a... Um, a useful thing for you to do sometime soon. Look up every occurrence of the word peace in the New Testament. It is all over the place. Virtually every greeting of every New Testament book, whether it's Paul or Peter or James, almost every one begins the letter with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we tend to think that is simply the, the ancient version of how are you? Because right? when you ask someone, how are you? And they actually start telling you, you're like, I know, I, I didn't really mean it. I was just doing what people do. I just, you know, that's what I'm supposed to ask is how are you? I don't think grace and peace, or grace to you and peace was simply, you know, this is the thing I have to say at the beginning. And I think the apostles quite literally were speaking the blessing of God's grace and his peace on the churches because the prince of peace has come. And there will be no end to the increase of peace now that he has come. The New Testament talks about peace all over the place. In Romans 5, maybe the most important statement of peace, Paul says, having now been justified by faith, we believe the gospel, and now we're declared righteous, having that be true of us, we have, do you know what it is? Peace with God. The most important peace we need is with God. As Jordan said, following up on Jeremy, it was great. Or Jeremy said this. Sorry, I shouldn't give credit to Jordan. Jeremy said this. And for those of you who were just watching the cute kids, here's what he said. We were enemies of God. That's what the scripture says. Every one of us was born into this world God's enemy. Not neutral. Not basically good. Not, you know, take it or leave it. We didn't like him and he didn't like us. We had our own little darkness and gloom hovering over us. But now, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He has set aside his weapons, and we've set aside our weapons, and we've been reconciled. We are friends. 
That's good news. Because the Prince of Peace has come and he took God's hostility on himself when he hung on the cross so we can be his friends. Then a little bit later in the same book in Romans, chapter 14, Paul says, the kingdom of God, of which we are, we're part of this, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't throw parties. We should throw parties. But he's talking about some people eat certain things and some people don't eat certain things. And again, he's not talking about like gluten allergies. He's talking about for religious reasons. Some people think, oh, I can't please God and eat pork. Ugh, those poor people. <laughs> Ignorant of the truth. It's not about any longer, it's not about the rituals and the routines and what you eat and what you don't eat and serving a day or keeping a day. And it's none of that. The, the kingdom of God, he says, is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is because the prince of peace has come. In Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. As the Spirit of God is transforming us, one of the things that he creates is peace. Increasing our understanding of the peace we have with God and our peace with one another. Ephesians says there were two groups who were hostile to one another, Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus himself is our peace. He broke down the wall, the barrier that separated us and brought us into one new man. And now no matter what your ethnicity or religious background, if you've come to Christ, you have peace with other Christians. Because Jesus has destroyed the divisions that used to exist. At the end of Ephesians, Paul calls the gospel the gospel of peace. Because we are telling others they too can have peace with God and peace with each other. In Colossians, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Those are all plural words. He's not saying that you should strive for the peaceful, easy feeling in your own heart. We want to make everything about me, 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 individualism. It's a plural. Let the peace of Christ rule in all y'all's hearts, for those of you from Texas. All y'all. The peace of Christ, the Prince of Peace, his peace, make sure that his peace rules in your heart collectively whenever you're together. And I could go on and on and on. Peace is a constant theme in the New Testament. There's one hope, one baptism, one faith, one unity in peace, and so on. And there will be no end to the increase of his kingdom or of peace. We should be very hopeful as we preach the gospel. The gospel's going to grow and grow and grow. It started off as a mustard seed. Jesus said it would, but it would grow into this huge tree. And it's going to fill the earth. Jesus is going to reign from river to river, from sea to sea, the scripture says. 
but it's not a manufactured peace. There will continue to be opposition. Here's the, here's the balance. Jesus said this, and these are hard words, and words that all of us are living. Some right now are living this, and some were living this before, and they'll live it again. But here's what Jesus said. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Now, why would anybody think that? Because of everything I just said. That's what he's going to do. He's the, he's the prince of peace. Jesus says, don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. What do you mean, Jesus? Maybe you should read Isaiah, who predicted that you would bring peace. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What do you do with swords? You fight. Right? You fight. You seek to inflict harm on someone else. And you defend yourself from those who are attacking you. What do you mean, Jesus, you came to bring a sword and not peace? And this is where it gets hard. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, we, we get that one. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Whoa, could you give me more, Jesus? What do you mean? He says, sure. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. It's not peace at all costs. It's not a manufactured peace where we all pretend like we like each other and let's just, can't we all get along? We follow the Prince of Peace as our High King. And Jesus says, there are some, even in your own family, who will hate you for it. It's coming to your family and mine. As the world becomes, it seems like, more and more leftist and progressive, I don't mean that purely in political terms. I mean the whole movement away from anything that smacks of God, which our media is trying to create and a government has taken upon the role to themselves as God. The government will take care of us. The government will provide for all of our needs. And they're preserving their own power continuously. As everything shifts that direction, there are going to be people in our own households that go with them. And when we say things like, the Bible says a man is the head of his home. No, you're misogynist, you're sexist, you're patriarchal, you're fill in the blank. They will turn on us. 
And when we say the Bible says a marriage is between a man and a woman, period, there are going to be people in your family and mine that say, no, 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 that's harsh and cruel, unloving. That's a, that's a hate attitude, and they will turn on us, and they will hate us for our allegiance to Christ. It's not peace at all costs. It's peace that comes from those or comes to those who are truly following the Prince of Peace. We must never compromise the truth of Jesus for the sake of peace. At the same time, the writer of Hebrews says this, Pursue peace and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We must not compromise, but as far as it's possible within us, live at peace with people. Standing firm and realizing some are going to hate us for it. But some will have a conversation. As we are going through John's gospel and the, and the upper room discourse, uh, a few weeks ago I preached on the passage where Jesus said, you know, the world will hate us. And someone said to me, you know, I find that as I have more and more spiritual conversations with people, they're pretty open to it. And that was a good clarification. The world system is what Jesus was talking about. The world system that Satan is pushing forward, that world hates us. And he is trying, Satan is trying to move the world system against, against Christ. But individuals, the average American, your, your average coworker or neighbor or even family member doesn't hate you. Or at least they don't always act like they hate you. Now, maybe that's because you're not standing for truth enough. But maybe it's just because they're not actively hating us and they're willing to have a conversation. That's the risk we need to take. We need to press into every relationship with the gospel of Jesus. And as we do, we will come across those who slam the door in our face, say, get out of here, you bigot. I don't want to talk to you. But other people are going to say, tell me more. Because I sense in my spirit, in my heart, in my conscience that I am an enemy of God. And you're telling me there's a way that I can be friends with God? Tell me more. Pursue peace with all men, the writer of Hebrews says. So what do we do with this? Number one, we pursue peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, if you're here today, and you're one of those visitors or a family member or a friend or maybe you've been in this church for years. You know in your own heart whether or not you're a friend of God. Because the voices in your head, not the ones, not the crazy ones, <laughs> but the conscience 
If you walk around constantly in fear of God that any moment he may strike you down, you're not a Christian. But you can call upon the name of the Lord today and have peace with God. And all that goes away. He takes it off of our shoulders and puts it on Jesus. And we walk in gladness and in joy. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Where the elders will be up front, they'd love to talk to you. Grab anybody here. I'm confident in every Christian in this room to tell you the truth about Jesus. So the first thing is, make sure you have peace with God. Number two, have peace with other believers. How's your household? Are you at war with anyone in your household? If so, it's time to repent. When the scripture says, pursue peace with all men, he doesn't mean except for that jerk of a husband do you have. (laughs) Or that woman you gave me. Or these kids. Or these parents. Now we're not talking about the kind of peace like tranquility. You can't have that with kids in the home. That's not the kind of peace Jesus came to bring. You know the kind of peace I'm talking about. And to the degree that you are the one causing the war in your household, you're in sin. And you need to repent, confess it to the Lord and to your family members, and pursue peace. Because it's what the Prince of Peace is calling you to do. And then finally, pursue the peace that Christ can bring into this world with everybody. There are times we have to fight. You know the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping, right? Peacekeepers just, whatever they can do, we, you know, I'm going to make everybody happy, and that never works. Sometimes in order to really make peace, we have to fight. But the goal is peace, not war. And so don't go to your neighbor trying to start a war in the name of the gospel. Try to have peace. And when someone at Walmart says happy holidays, it's fine to say Merry Christmas, but don't say Merry Christmas if you please. <laughs> don't, don't do that. No one has ever been converted in the history of mankind because someone said, Merry Christmas, like that. Don't do that. We're going to be a peaceful bunch. There's a time for war. There's a time to go to battle. But remember who the enemy is. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And take the gospel of peace peace to this world because God has said my son's kingdom and his peace will only increase it will not decrease 
Let's trust him and preach the gospel of peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today we celebrate that Christ, our peace, has come. The angels on that morning or night sang the song, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men. Oh Lord, give us faith to believe your word, to take you at your word, that your kingdom is going to increase and peace is going to reign on this planet. And we as your soldiers, each one of us is commissioned to take the gospel of peace into the kingdom of darkness and release captives from gloom and the enemy and bring them into the kingdom of your beloved son. May we be bold to preach that gospel and to be peaceful and start in our own homes for the king of peace is worthy. Amen.